Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and uh, since we no longer have a wine club, uh, we've sort of redone the podcast, I guess. Uh, the new goal of the podcast is maybe less so talking about specific wines, but maybe more talking about wine in general, uh, and chatting with our friends both in the wine industry and outside of the wine industry. And so as the first rendition of this, uh, we have a really good friend of ours in the studio who just happens to be visiting uh, from the Okanagan slash uh, Similkameen. Uh, I'll have you introduce yourself. Hey everyone, this is Rajan Tour from Ursa Major Wines. Um, I am the farmer, winemaker, owner, and so far sole employee of uh, Ursa Major Wines in Oliver. Nice. Um, well, I guess like diving right into it, uh, we've been speaking over the course of the last, uh, you know, three days that you've been in Calgary here, uh, chatting a ton about your history and, and sort of winemaking philosophy, but I guess sort of going all the way back, um, you mentioned that you basically started helping out around the family farm from the time that you were like a kid. Uh, you know, you, I remember you mentioning that, uh, that you know, in order to have friends over, you have to finish your chores and your chores happen to be vineyard work. Um, at this point, were you already getting excited about the idea of working in agriculture? Like, did you see that agriculture was maybe something you were interested in pursuing? Or at that point where you're like, this is the family thing and I want out of this as like quickly as possible? Well, I mean, when they, when they first started growing grapes, we were just growing grapes. Um, <clears throat> And as kids, having to uh, prune and cane pull and do all this menial work in the vineyard, it wasn't really exciting as a four to five year old looking forward to uh, getting or staying in the vineyard and doing this forever. But as the years went on and the family transitioned to um, winemaking, then it kind of started to pique my interest because then I was able to see that, okay, there is a, um, you can see where the grapes that you farm end up. Because before we were just shipping the grapes off to, uh, to a different winery. So by the time I was around 11 or 12 and they started actually making wine, seeing the end product, putting it in your glass and tasting it um, and being able to be a part of the journey from pruning all the way to the the wine in the glass. Then it really started to get me um, intrigued and interested, and uh, yeah, a little more so than just doing some of the menial work in the vineyard. <laughs> totally, yeah. Um, in those early days, uh, what what were the aspirations? Like, did you want to be, you know, an astronaut or a doctor or something <laughs> like that? Did you have like sort of a a thought of like what the aspirational goals were going to be or was it just uh i mean it was never to farm that's for sure yeah. <laughs> the goal was always to um escape oliver and escape the farming world to uh quote unquote bigger and better things um i actually wanted to be an actor i did a lot of theater throughout high school mm. and uh after high school so i moved to vancouver to give it a go but I always came back to Oliver to help out the family during harvest and um, not really knowing it at the time um, coming back for harvest was always a super exciting time just being in the throes of it being in the chaos and uh, again being more involved in the process of turning those grapes that we've been farming for since we were toddlers into wine and it just kept year to year piquing my interest more and more and then uh, finally decided that uh, I think it makes sense to try my own hand at it at the same time as help my family's winery kind of evolve into the next generation with with um, the winemaker at the time totally um, when your family first purchased the farm I think you said it was about 30 years ago um, was it all the land they have right now or has it been added to over the, over the time or gotten rid of plots and has it evolved that way or has it always been sort of just the same? It uh, definitely evolved quite a bit. So they moved to the Okanagan in the late 80s and um, 
they bought the, the the current vineyard that they that they own now. They bought that as an apple orchard. Hmm. So they were just farming apples for a few years, and then they were approached by a larger winery in the Fraser Valley that um, kind of educated on educated them on the fact that this is a pretty prime area to grow some uh, Bordeaux varieties and Chardonnay and um, and Pinot Gris and all that. So they slowly transitioned it over um, a couple years after that, but they started off with the twenty five acres that they have now. And uh, over the years, slowly brought on more leases and more leases of um, um, different properties, all kind of in the same area, though, yeah. all over Nassoyus. Totally. Uh, what were they farming before, like, orchard fruit and, and, and grapes? Was it farming before that as well, too, or was this, like, the first dive into farming? Um, no, my family's actually been uh, farming in the Punjab in India for hundreds of years um so generations and generations of farmers mostly wheat mm-hmm. and canola and all that um so they had a base knowledge and experience of farming and the equipment and kind of the general general farming so totally. when they came to canada they um they were working in a lot of orchards in oliver for for other people and uh then i think just through some experience and um really good timing they uh, they purchased the apple orchard that they uh, that they have now that's the vineyard wow super cool um when they made the transition from uh selling their grapes and having somebody else make the wine to then getting more involved and, and having the wine made on site and, and wine made from their specific vineyards uh can you remember those early wines and, and sort of what your interpretation was of them like what was it inspiring where you're like yes like this is maybe an exciting thing or was that so earlier in your wine career that you that maybe didn't have as much of an impact yet i think a little bit of both but um to the first part of the question um the because because we were just hand bottling garage wines those first few years um there was a pretty intense and visceral I guess rawness and purity to the wines because they weren't being mm-hmm. they, they weren't being jammed through a filter or through a bottling line and this and that it was just from uh, glass carboys through a siphon into a bottle so and we still have some of the wines that we made back in um, back in the mid 90s and uh, yeah still very just raw and pure wines it's uh, it's interesting how things end up getting getting a little bit diluted over the years just through different uh, mechanizations and um, additions and et cetera, et cetera. I guess scaling. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's... Uh, at, the, at the time, I can, I can recall tasting the product and getting excited about it, but not really knowing or foreseeing myself doing that. Again, being born and raised in a tiny, tiny town, um, the goal is always to... To escape the town yeah totally <laughs> like at the time i mean it's 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 a pretty childish thing at the time but um uh you always think in your mind if you end up staying in your hometown or coming back to your hometown that you kind of failed yeah um so the goal was always to 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 escape <laughs> yeah for sure so even even if like subconsciously i knew i wanted to um farm grapes and make wine uh, at the time, that was I definitely definitely pushed it uh, pushed it down. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, interesting. Yeah, uh, I mean, we were probably also uh, jaded by the fact that we had to do vineyard work as chores. Totally. So it wasn't really fun at the time. <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, so many of us who work in the wine industry, but not on the agriculture side, when we go and do harvest or something like that, there's this certain sort of quaintness about it where Mm. we're like oh it's so cool we're like you know we're like pruning for the day and it's this thing that seems very charming to our to our lives of you know living in condo buildings in downtown calgary uh and then you go out there and you sort of romanticize the the agriculture when you realize like yeah if you do this for three months straight and you have a deadline of like literally mother nature bearing down on you (laughs) for like how long you can take to do a certain task 
it yeah it definitely strips a little bit of that romanticism 100%. from it and makes you way more of a you know way more practical um yeah i think that's super interesting in those early days um were there any wines that that sort of piqued your interest like made you have that aha moment of like hey this is maybe more than than what i thought it was um that it could I don't know, get you closer to where your current philosophy is, which is, I think, the ideology that, like, wine can transmit a lot more than flavor, essentially. What were maybe some of the first wines that you were tasting in this era that that maybe gave you that inkling that it could be more? To be frank, I mean, when we did, uh, those early days when we did start, there wasn't a lot of wine education, um, even in the Okanagan so most of what we were drinking or trying or whatever um, was other Okanagan wines. Mm-hmm. And again, at, at the time, there wasn't a lot of uh, thought into experimentation, different varieties, different styles, etc., etc. Everyone was just starting out, so pretty run-of-the-mill stylistically. Um, and again, we, we didn't really have a lot of options to try different things to expand our palate. So your palate ends up, um, ends up becoming a little bit of a cellar palate or just a regional palate. So the big, bolder, Bordeaux-style blends and reds and uh, lots of Merlots, that was kind of what we had available to us. Mm-hmm. And uh, didn't really know that there was other styles and wines outside of that so when we first started out that's just kind of like okay obviously this is what we need to do this is what good wine is apparently so let's uh, just make that but when I did slowly start um, uh, this Ursa Major project back in 2015-2016 the two others that I was working in the cellar with uh, in my family's winery they were definitely older and much more experienced than I was. So they introduced me to a lot of um, different wines and styles and, uh, and uh, were my forte into um, natural wine. And I, I'd say those were some of the aha moments, realizing, mm-hmm. oh, okay, wine can be so much more than just putting itself into a regional box. You know, there's so many different styles and iterations and uh, and uh, characters that every winemaker can bring into it instead of just playing by the regional rules that you've been exposed to thus far. So I think that was definitely the aha um, um, time frame, I guess. Mm-hmm. Natural Beaujolais was my intro into this. Nice awakening <laughs> totally <laughs> definitely and the the fact that you uh at least this year are releasing two different gammes uh that's maybe a little uh, throwback to that yeah and i mean actually yeah like when we um we were one of the first gamay growers or my family was one of the first gamay growers in the okanagan um back when nobody in the okanagan or bc knew what gamay was everybody was just growing caps of merlot chard syrah um and some other bordeaux varieties but the, the winery that we were selling the grapes to in the Fraser Valley, they got my parents onto Gamay. Mm-hmm. So they um, had a test block that we planted back in, um, in 94. And uh, I kind of grew up alongside those vines. And it's actually pretty crazy to say that... Na- um, this year, I'm still releasing Ursa Major wines with that same fruit. You know, I've been buying this Gamay fruit from my family's vineyard now for the last few years for my own project. And uh, just evolving that skew year to year, learning more and more about that fruit. And I mean, over the last 15 years of, of working with it, finally realizing that, um, okay, I've, I, I can kind of understand year to year what this fruit's doing what the soil's doing um the canopy management and yeah it's just been fun to like really hone in on one or two blocks in a vineyard and actually be able to work with them for uh for over a decade totally and releasing those wines uh still 
Yeah. It's, yeah. And especially something that was kind of right under your nose in the sense that, yeah, it was like planted essentially a couple of years after you were born. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so it's like you grew up next to these vines in the vines, like not knowing that they would have such an impact on, you know, what you, what you do day to day now. No uh, idea. And like, in a way, like some of the things that you're known for, like I, I'd say of the wines you release, like Gamay is definitely something that I look forward to, to drinking. Uh, and then I think like fits maybe the, the stylistic ethos uh, of Ursa Major, like as a general statement where it's like, yeah, the Gamay is always kind of like that center point almost. Yeah. Uh, and everything kind of like spreads out from that. Um, True. Yeah. Um, yeah. Super cool. Um, in with the transition of going and working in the winery more than just in the vineyard. Um, what were some of the cases where it was like your first opportunity to make decisions? Like uh, whether that be to be like, Oh, I think we're going to like wild ferment this tank or like, um, or to, and maybe those decisions came when you started your own project where you're like, okay, I want to do this, but obviously we're not going to do under, under the family label. Uh, we'll set it off to the side and do a side thing. But like when, when and what were those first decisions? Um, I think that came around 2018. So again, the the two other winemakers that I was working with uh, in the cellar were um, all three of us at that point had gotten very interested and curious about drinking natural wine and learning about what it is. And I think we that, 2018 was kind of the year that we wanted to start to implement a few of those things into the um, um, the family's wines and kind of evolve them a little bit, just slowly introduce a few of these things at a time. So yeah, I think around 2018 was the, was the time where we started to play around with um, not using commercial yeasts and working with the, um, the ambient yeast from the vineyard. Uh, making a few different stylistic choices that, you know, two, three years prior to that, we never even would have uh, dreamed about or, or knew about. Um, and then seeing the end results and how varied and interested and interested, interesting, sorry, and unique they can be, it just, it just, uh, the floodgates just open from there. And like, okay, now we need to try other things and implement this and on top of what we've already been starting the last yeah. couple of years and it just kind of it just snowballed from there yeah and then we just ran with it <laughs> all of a sudden there's amphora exactly <laughs> all these yeah. new things showing up in the line you're like okay okay now we're doing it yeah yeah that's oh, super cool uh what, what was your very first release like under your own label i don't know if i know this uh the very first release was um a chardonnay back in 2016 mm-hmm. um again this was before we started to play around with different styles and expand our palette. So we got um, four brand new barrels and uh, did a nice new oak barrel fermented Chardonnay. And uh, yeah, yeah, I still have a few bottles sitting and I remember we tasted them last year and it's just, it's just crazy to see the... Um, uh, the, the evolution of the style of the wines. It's just like this dense, luscious, huge wine. And that was, again, at that time, I thought that that was what good wine is. Yeah. And anything outside of that um, framework is not quite as prestigious. And that was yeah. kind of the word that was always floating around at, at the time. Prestige, prestige for wines. Mm-hmm. There was no other um, quality marker for, <laughs> for for any sort of wine, especially in the Okanagan. So the first couple of vintages definitely had that um, bolder, richer, more, again, I say this in quotes, prestigious style. Yeah. And uh, again, going back to what, uh, what I said, 2018, 2019 is kind of when... Uh, um, I started to, through the help and experience of uh, the winemakers that I was working with, um, evolve and hone in that style. And then again, just um, keep dialing it in from there. Totally. Um, So obviously after that, you started to 
expand a bit into uh, more cuvées, more different grape varieties, more different styles, everything from rosé to skin contact to light reds, full-bodied reds, like everything there. Um, how was uh, accessing fruit at that point and, and how is accessing fruit now? Obviously, you have some major changes in the sense that uh, acquiring vineyards, long-term leases, um, maybe walk people through like what that looks like going from, you know, like a garageist, like, uh, making a couple cases, Mm -hmm. you know, off of a one-time fruit purchase to being like, Hey, building a brand, finding access to fruit, and then something that's, uh, maybe more going to be permanent going forward. Yeah. So um, I was definitely in the fortunate position where I could purchase fruit from my family's vineyard uh, those first um, those first few years and not have to worry about volumes because again at that time the plan wasn't to turn this into a full-on business it was just a, a side project so just buying a few tons here and there or a couple of tons here and there um, just from the family's vineyards that I've been working with for the last, you know, since we were born really um, was definitely a fortunate position. But then as they grew and Ursa Major grew as well, um, didn't have as much access to, to buying fruit from the family. So um, started to build some relationships with growers outside um, of Oliver and um, just through word of mouth finding a few tons here and there um, but again as as we doubled and tripled production um, we had to find more permanent food sources something a little bit more reliable because just uh, getting a ton or two from from this grower and that grower without any contracts or leases is uh, is good from year to year but um, the consistency tends to lack a little bit and then once march rolls around you start to getting the anxiety again about where the fruit's going to come from so the last couple of years was definitely about um, about putting together some more consistent and reliable fruit sources so whether that be signing three to five year contracts um, through word of mouth, finding growers that are looking for passionate organic producers that want to do five to 10 year leases. And then the the ultimate culmination of uh, my wife and I buying a 14 acre property uh, just this past December. So now that we have our own vineyard, and then a least a long-term lease vineyard, we can from jump farm the grapes how we want, knowing that we're gonna have consistent skews going forward. Mm-hmm. So we can you know plan from January right into um, right into harvest instead of you know in August running around and, and and calling and messaging people if they have any fruit, you know, and then just it landing on your on your doorstep and then having to figure out what to do with it on the spot which is also fun and has um, kind of forced us to be creative over the last few years um, and has given us some pretty unexpected skews and styles but I think now that the business is growing and it's um, we're looking for a little bit more consistency in our skews and Consistency also in the fact that we can start to start to do verticals just to see the evolution of the, mm-hmm. our vineyards and our farming practices as well. So we can have uh, consistent skews and then we can at least look back three to five years and say, okay, farming-wise, what do we need to change? How do we need to evolve? Um, yeah, I think just consistency and, and uh, a more realistic business model. <laughs> totally. Yeah, even just with those verticals, it's it's interesting because um, over the last couple of days we've been pouring a ton of your wines, and uh, at several events now we've had the 2021 Rosé, um, which is a like a direct pressed Cab Franc, more of a Vin Gris style almost, um, and it is 
so wildly different from the 2022 rosé, which again, they, they have different names. So it's, you know, it's not necessarily that the consumer is going to be equating the two together, but it's, it, they're so drastically different from one another um, because fruit sources are different, inclusions are different, all those sort of things. And then that's mirrored in the Riesling where last year's Riesling, uh, entirely different, 14% alcohol, uh, dry or all but dry, essentially, um, botrytis affected versus the one this year, the 2022 version of it is like screamingly high acid, off dry from a vineyard in, in Kelowna. Uh, and so like following it from year to year is more watching you change as a, a winemaker rather than watching uh, what's happening in an actual vineyard site. So I think it'll be super cool to see multiple vintages of similar winemaking style because I think you've also sort of honed in maybe a little bit more on what you like to do to grapes as a general statement. Like the conversation we were having about you're like, I like doing whole cluster gamay whenever possible. Uh, you're like, unless it's a super smoky vintage, like we're doing whole cluster yeah. gamay. Um, so now that like you've isolated, like that's a style that I like making, uh, being able to do that every year going forward, that's going to be super cool to see how those wines taste and, and how they are different from one another based on season rather than fruit availability or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think um, having that experience over the over the first five years of the business has really um, given me the experience and confidence to start to do the more consistent skews mm-hmm. um, because you know you get uh, different fruit from different growing regions and terroirs um, from wildly different vintages that show up on your doorstep, so figuring out on the spot what to do with something that you've never worked with has been the biggest teacher over the last few years. Mm-hmm. So that, like, like you said, that reasoning that came in last year, um, it showed up on our doorstep and it was 70% botrytis affected. I've never worked with botrytis affected fruit before, but the fruit's sitting there and you paid, you know, so many thousand dollars a ton for it. You got to act yeah. right away. It's just sitting there. And then um, that compared to this year, Riesling fruit from Kelowna, which is the complete other side of the valley, and uh, it being on the complete other side of the spectrum, you know, underripe and highly acidic. And again, it shows up on your doorstep and you paid so many thousand tons for it. You got to figure it out. So I think that experience has definitely been one of the biggest teachers um, to give me the confidence to um, to now kind of want to take that experience and hone in on um, some consistency going forward. Totally. Um, do you want to maybe give us a rundown on uh, what we can expect for, for 2022 wines, uh, both as like a vintage statement, but also the wines that you have coming out this year, the ones you're allowed talking about so far? Yeah. <laughs> I know some of them are still secrets, I guess. But, um, but yeah, if you want to give us a rundown on that, I feel like that'd be great. Yeah, so... 2022 was a great growing season, especially for the wines um, and the style of wines that I prefer to a drink and also uh, make. Uh, it was a pretty, it was a pretty wet and cold start to the season. We didn't get bud break till about the second week of May, um, so it definitely had some people worried. But uh, the amount of moisture the vines were absolutely thrilled. You know, they had, we had some extreme drought seasons in uh, 2020 and 2021. So the vines were happy. There was green growth everywhere. It was, um, everybody's vineyard was an absolute jungle. So it was, it was hard to tame, but uh, it, was, it was nice to see that the, the vines in the soil were, um, were happy and flourishing. Um, but it was a pretty short uh, ripening window. We didn't even get Varese on until um, in some of our vineyards until the end of August. Like our Naramata vineyard that we lease, we didn't see color change until at least September. Um, and then going into September, uh, August, we had one of the hottest Augusts on record, which is it doesn't even make sense in the context of the rest of that season. And September cooled down a little bit. So 
everybody was getting a little bit nervous about ripening, so people started to drop fruit like crazy. Um, and then the end of September and most of October gave us 25 degrees, lots of sun, and so we kept those high-toned, um, that high-toned freshness in, in the berries, lots of great acidity, but then that warm October just helped push the ripening through. So lots of very, very energetic, fresh, um, fun, youthful wines that can also go the distance. And also last year was the first year that um, we farmed our Stoneface Vineyard, which is in Naramata. So it's about three acres planted with Gamay, uh, Pinot Gris, and Riesling. So the fact that I got to make two different Gamay's from two very different uh, terroirs that um, I've been farming was daunting, but so, so exciting, especially it being Gamay. Um, our Naramata vineyard, again, called Stoneface, there's um, a giant stone face <laughs> that runs through the entire vineyard. So... Um, a lot of the wines from there are um, just going to be completely different than the ones that we grow on pure sand in Oliver. Um, so those wines I'll be releasing uh, later on this summer. And um, that is probably the, the ones that I'm most excited for. Uh, currently, we have our whole cluster Gamay and Riesling that uh, Eric mentioned. And then coming down the pipeline very soon are some other very exciting wines. For one, a co-ferment, uh, a single vineyard co-ferment of Sauve Blanc and Muscat um, from fruit that I've been working with from the Golden Mile Bench in Oliver. Uh, we have a really fun rosé um, comprised of a bunch of experimental cuvées and ferments in the cellar that didn't really have enough volume to be bottled on their own. So my wife and I did um, some blending trials and um, this came up with this really fun blend of uh, carbonic Cab Franc, direct press, barrel fermented Syrah, Gamay, and um, some Empress Plums. And then uh, the third wine that's coming out this spring that uh, I've been actually wanting to do for, I've, number of years now so it's from a single vineyard that um, I've been working with in Kaledin uh, called Terrace Vineyard uh, and it's planted with just Merlot and Gewürztraminer um, with the Geneva double curtain trellising system um, I've wanted to do a field blend of the two varieties from that vineyard for a while but um, 2020, 2021 vintages didn't really dictate that. The harvest windows were a little bit off for the two um, for the two varieties, but 2022, um, the harvest window was right on for both. So we um, destemmed 60% Merlot and 40% Gewurztraminer from the from the same vineyard, and co-fermented them together in stainless steel. So that wine is, um, I think, the one that I'm most excited for this spring, just because I've been so curious about that blend for the last two, three years. And uh, finally being able to, um, to put it together this year is uh, very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, something very unique. Um, yeah, coming very soon. <laughs> <laughs> like very soon, actually. Very soon, yeah. yeah. Now, that wine is super exciting to me as well, too. It definitely shows that... Um, that Gewurz really toes that line between red and white as far as mm. a grape variety. I think a lot of people, if they were to see the color of Gewurztraminer in a vineyard, they they might assume that it is a red grape um, yeah. because it has that sort of golden, dusky pink kind of coppery yeah. color to it. Um, and so I, I feel like a like skin contact on it makes so much sense. Uh, because it's fairly low in acid, and so you need something to sort of balance out the sort of like lugubrious qualities of it, where you need like bitterness essentially, mm -hmm. and, and you know, Gewurz skins tend to be 
have a lot of bitterness to them. So it's like it balances it out in the same way that something like tonic balances itself out. It balances sugar with bitterness as opposed to balancing it with acidity. Um, so yeah, I love the combo of, of those two grape varieties and it, it definitely accentuates some of the things in Merlot that we forget are classic Merlot flavor characteristics, yes. like red fruit, for instance. Um, so yeah, I really like that blend. I think it's super fun. It's yeah. Yeah. Very excited to, um, to, uh, present that to the public. <laughs> totally. Um, so you've spoken a little bit about your, your sort of some of the techniques that you use when it comes to winemaking. Um, I feel like you really toe that line of uh, pragmatic in the sense that you obviously want to release wines that that taste good, um, but are also very much an idealist uh, for your belief in wines being able to be made to the caliber that you would like them to be made, but without uh, manipulating too heavily. where is that sort of line for you and how do you feel like you fit into the natural wine community um and what is your sort of future goal again like with more consistency of fruit obviously you have more room to to wiggle what would be like the ideal situation for you as far as your winemaking philosophy i think the biggest thing that i've learned over the last um two three years is uh if you can start off with some clean, healthy fruit, then you're able to um, bring that in through harvest as well. And you don't really have to worry too much about stability and um, adding something if things do go south. So the fact that we get to farm our, our own fruit I mean, it's completely our responsibility and me knowing that that's going to be my primary fruit source for my wines that I'm making that year, I make sure that uh, the farming is um, clean right from the get-go. Then I can have that confidence of letting the wines do their thing throughout fermentation and throughout elevage and not having to worry too, too much. So with the stone face wines, for example, um, yeah, I did pretty much everything by hand, all the sprays. Uh, with a backpack, weed whacking, and then seeing that result in the bins of just like pure clean fruit, my usual anxiety throughout harvest uh, was kind of um, waned just because a lot of other fruit that I buy is from uh, other vineyards. So, I mean, yeah, you get told one thing and you see the fruit, but you never really know. There's always some things that the, the grower doesn't want to tell you yeah for sure. um so you get a, you have a little bit more anxiety of the, the stability of the ferment and um the health of the of the yeast and all that but doing a pied de cuve for, with our own um from our own vineyard with clean fruit that we farmed ourselves you can kind of just let that go so it was the first year that i had a lot more trust in my cuvées and in the ferments mm-hmm. and um, I wasn't hovering and constantly opening bungs and smelling and tasting and smelling and tasting I just uh, I just gave them the trust and confidence um, that everything was farmed well everything was healthy everything was balanced um, from the farming it the ferment has all the nutrition that it needs so I was a little bit more hands-off and um, just let the barrels do their thing. And once every, let's say, six to eight weeks, when to taste. And um, compared to previous years, a lot more excited about the result. Just a lot more of a pure, raw, unadulterated product, if that makes sense, you know? Because mm-hmm. before I'm always, um, I'm always hovering and, and opening the bung and letting oxygen in and, mm and uh inadvertently doing more harm to the wines by hovering than than not yeah so um seeing the result now um right before bottling by giving the wines that the the trust and uh and space and time that they need has been uh, a revelation Mm -hmm. and uh would hope to hope to keep 
keep in my philosophy going forward. It also eases my anxiety because I'm a very anxious person and, and uh, you know, wine growing and making doesn't really help that. But um, knowing that my wife and I are farming, you know, organically and clean and making sure everything is getting the nutrition that it needs and on a timely manner, I can just have more calm confidence going into harvest and uh, into the aging of the wines. Yeah, with your new vineyard, um, it's in the Similkameen. It is planted to Syrah, Viognier, and Zinfandel. Mm-hmm. Um, You're saying mostly sand on sort of the upper section, and then you have uh, where the Zinfandel is. It's it's a little bit more clay. Um, what are your goals for that vineyard from a farming perspective? Is the goal to get more organic matter into the soil? Like what's sort of the most immediately pressing, uh, you know, goal? Because you just acquired this vineyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you were saying that it was maybe in a little bit of rough shape uh, when you first got it. Yeah, I think um, it's been a little bit underwatered. Mm-hmm. So you can definitely tell where the... Uh, um, where the sand and silt are, there's a lot of uh, empty spaces, and then where the property um, slopes down into this giant um, clay block where the Zinfandel is, Zinfandel is planted, you can see that uh, everything there is super vigorous, even with the lack of watering. Um, everything is way way past the the top wire and. Uh, Compared to the Saran Vionier, which is on um, sand and silt, there are a few weak sections where, where the water has kind of just drained away. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest thing for us is uh, um, you know, just acquiring this vineyard and, co- and going into our first growing season with it. Um, definitely giving it the moisture that it needs and uh, bringing in more and more organic matter. But it's hard to really plan too much outside of just general organic farming because the previous owners were farming it completely different than how we would farm it. And they were making wines from it completely um, different stylistically than the wines that we make and will want to make from the vineyard. Mm-hmm. So I think the first couple of years is just going to be... Um, bringing in moisture, bringing in organic matter, and figuring out what the vineyard wants to do. Mm-hmm. So I think guiding it into place over the next couple of seasons is going to be um, going to be the key, especially through pruning, um, just shaping the, the structure of the vines and bringing in a little bit more balance, I think is going to be uh, going to be key. So I think caretaking is our number one yeah. priority this year and, and probably next year. Totally. Yeah. And Maybe. just getting to learn the vines too. Right? Exactly. Like figuring out which pockets are the pockets that, you know, maybe do have a little more nutrient in the soil and the vines look nice and green. And then another little pocket where you're like, okay, well, there's there's nothing in the soil here, obviously. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. we've also, um, this is our first time farming in the Similkameen. I've worked with Similkameen fruit before, but um, this is our first season um, farming in the Similkameen ourselves. So mm-hmm. not just getting used to the soil and our vineyard and our vines, but it's going to be figuring out and learning about um, what the region is like and how the howling wind affects the grapes and um, uh, the more mineral content in the valley, the shorter growing days. So I think it's going to be a lot of a lot of learning this year for ourselves and for the vines as well. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking with uh, Brie over the last couple days, I think she had mentioned that um, you were maybe thinking about grafting some of the vines to something else. Um, any idea of what that is or whether that's like an immediate future sort of thing or whether that's further down the, down the I, line? I think now that, again, it is our, our own property, um, we definitely are excited with the prospect of being able to experiment and not having to uh, ask permission from somebody else. And by that, yeah, I think we want to experiment with uh, grafting on some different varieties that um, may be a little bit more suitable to the style of wines that uh, we've been making and, and want to keep making going forward. 
um, and probably bringing in more Gamay because mm-hmm. I would love to work with Gamay from three different regions. Yeah, three absolutely. different wildly different regions, and I think that would be really exciting going forward in the portfolio. Um, and then I think slowly, uh, just panel by panel, we kind of want to work with different clones of um, the existing vines that we do have. Mm. So uh, different clones of Syrah, different trellising systems, just to see what's going to help going forward, just because we had a pretty rough winter um, and uh, a lot of the vines didn't fare too well. So I think we've been talking to a few of our neighbors, including um, uh, the guys over at Scout, and I think we want to work together and see what clone trellising system for Syrah can really um, thrive in the erratic Similkameen uh, climate. You know, hot, hot summers, cold, cold winters, like what's going to be the best thing going forward? So I think we're just going to play around and do some experimentation with the varieties that we have and um, slowly but surely try to uh, graft on some some new stuff. Nice. Super fun. Um, I guess, speaking of Brie, uh, what's the... I, I don't know if you have a goal together so far, but uh, obviously she's an incredible winemaker in her own right, um, and especially on the, on the technical side of winemaking, mm-hmm. um, making wines that again, can easily compete worldwide in, in more classic wine competitions, uh, for instance. Um, is the goal to work closer and closer together? Um, is the goal to keep things a little bit more separate and then do sort of the occasional collaboration? I know she was, uh, we were talking about how she did the blending for the rosé this year, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, what's the sort of goal there as far as like this being a family property, essentially? The goal is to eventually, um, I mean, we are farming together now, um, but the goal is definitely to start to make some wines together as well. So I think once we have our own um, our own production facility up and running, we want to dive into a few different labels. So we want to keep Ursa Major, um, we want to keep Ursa Major, Ursa Major, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also want to, have maybe one or two skews from our um, from our own vineyard where we collaborate and then have uh, maybe another couple of skews where Brie gets to flex her own winemaking muscles. Totally. But um, when we have collaborated in the past, the results have been pretty spectacular um, because she does come from a more... Um, science-based technical side and then from my um experiential and a little bit more i guess uh instinctual side um when we have collaborated with those two two different viewpoints the results have been pretty spectacular so i think just teasing ourselves a couple times over the last uh, last few vintages has been um um, has gotten us excited for eventually having a co-label together where we can fully collaborate from uh, from Jump. Super cool. Yeah. Um, I guess that kind of leads me into the, the next kind of topic and questions that I have is uh, Mark and I were talking about this last night and we're like, wait, why is it called uh, Ursa Major again? <laughs> and we, I, I'm sure you've shared this story with me before, but I've, I've entirely forgotten at the moment. Maybe it's just the hangover, but, uh, <laughs> but either way, maybe you can give us an idea of, uh, of why you've decided to call your, uh, your brand what it is. So <clears throat> Ursa Major is the, um, the Great Bear constellation, um, which was always, or is always very visible from... Um, from our family vineyard in Oliver. And we always had this black bear come in with her cubs during harvest um, every year. I don't know if it's a different bear, or, but there was a black bear and cubs that made their way into the vineyard every harvest, and they would just vacuum off grapes off the vine, and we would go in the next day and um, just like whole rows... And all that's left on the vine is just stems. Like they just completely vacuum every berry right off. Um, I know one year um, they consumed about two tons 
of grapes. I don't know if it was a few different bears or what, but um, there was a lot of, of fruit missing. So the story there was that, I um, remember when we were kids, um, our parents would always say that, uh, I guess it's just, we can't really do anything about it. It's just a race to get to the fruit um, to feed our family against the bear who also needs to get to the fruit before us to feed her own family. And um, that little anecdote just kind of stuck and uh, just made sense going forward. Yeah, it's a great story. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, when I was working at Lightning Rock uh, in 2021, um, they have a particular block called the bear block. Uh, because they're like, yep, this is the block that the bear is inevitably going to eat, despite the fact that there's a fence there. Uh, they find a way. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, while we were harvesting it, the bear was there. Uh, and so I kind of got to have this like nice little connection with the, you know, the local residents. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, again, people forget that the Okanagan is still a wild place. Like there's a lot of land that's undeveloped and there's a lot of connections between those wild places where, where animals can still move freely mm-hmm. obviously they're still restricted to to a degree based on uh you know humanity uh, expanding into wherever it can get its little bodies but yeah uh, but yeah Th- i mean that being said the one thing that i i um definitely took away from that even as uh as a young adult and 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 now is that everybody's got to eat mm-hmm. <laughs> right doesn't matter if uh you're on the other side of the fence with this creature or somebody else doesn't matter what your viewpoints are at the end of the day one way or another everybody's got to eat and if that ends up inconveniencing one over the other it's uh it's nature yeah <laughs> it's it's, it's what we all need to do it's that struggle yeah, yeah and that kind of stuck um and that definitely stuck you know not just from that anecdote but also from growing up with a in a family that uh, immigrated over from from Punjab in the 80s so that anecdote with our um, childhoods and our family experience and family history, it all just kind of culminated in this, uh, in this name and, um, and story that just, just makes sense going forward. It, never, it, it was kind of timeless. It never was just something that, uh, you know, Ursa Major didn't really fade after a few years. It, that anecdote and that, um, that lesson and that story has always and it will always be friend of mind. Mm-hmm. I think um, one of the things that really drew me to your wines, uh, maybe more so from an aesthetic perspective, uh, is your labeling and your transparency and vulnerability when it comes to um, speaking about, I don't know, things happening in your life. Uh, I think a lot of people... Um, maybe separate the end product from the person that made it. But I think you do a very good job of uh, reminding people of the humanity of winemaking. Um, and it's one of those things where it's, it's you're able to be, um, yeah, this, this vulnerability where it's like very personal, but at the same time, you're also uh, maybe poking at some greater issues, um, whether that be, you know, interrelational uh, issues, whether that be more sort of uh, global, like socioeconomic issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you do a really great job of, of sneaking those onto the label. Um, I, I, again, I, I don't want to go on a rant here, but we were talking the other night about this idea that some of the things that we include in our brand image don't get us anything at all other than the fact that it makes us feel like we're being more authentic. Yeah. Uh, it makes us feel like, you know, when I post poetry on the Juice Imports Instagram, it does not get us more sales. In fact, the algorithm says that I should absolutely not do that, <laughs> like based on looking into it. Uh, like people immediately check out. They're like, no, we're here for the wine. But yeah. I'm also like, we are three-dimensional people mm-hmm. and we want to show you what concerts we're going to. We want to show you, you know, the restaurants we go to that don't have wine on the list, mm-hmm. that we're just excited about the people making the food and all these sort of things. Um, 
And I feel like you've done the equivalent of that through wine, which is not something I see very often, and especially not in the Okanagan, a place that, again, as we've spoken about a lot in the last couple of days, is mostly dominated by, uh, you know, rich dudes coming in and having these vanity projects where the wines are anonymous and expensive. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. What's what's your thoughts on um, on why you you choose to do this? Um, and and how your creative process works when it comes to again choosing labels and, and all these sort of decisions. This is such a personal project. Um, not only the fact that you know I do it all myself and it's my own my own business, but just grape growing and uh, wine making in general is such a personal, visceral part of my life and context and who I am um, you know growing up on the vineyard living in a um, in a joint family you know so my dad his two brothers and and grandparents and and all the families uh, all living in the same same house being born in the same house growing up in the same house and in the same business at the time there's not really a lot of separation of uh, of work and personal and family life. So all the context is overlapping. And um, because that was such a, such a huge part of growing up, my winemaking journey is essentially um, the, the, like the personal journey of my own context through my family, through getting to know myself, through my own um, issues and uh, mental health issues and all that, it's all one entity. So it didn't. So for me to um, to have this project, there really wasn't any other choice but to convey all of that visceral context through the wines themselves and the labels and presenting that in a in a you know as authentic way as I possibly can to the consumers. Um, it didn't really make any sense for me to just have a label that didn't bring all that in. Cause it, I don't know, it just like uh, winemaking to me is my, the whole context of my life. I know that sounds kind of corny, but it, yeah. it really is, you know, totally. all of my, um, a lot of my, yeah, a lot of my mental health issues and personal issues that I have with a myself or my family, Etc. Etc. It's all against the backdrop of 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 grape growing mm-hmm. and winemaking. That's always part of the backdrop and part of the context of everything. So it um, it just feels completely natural to present my own wines um, in that way. Um, kind of taking those personal stories that are floating around in my head and instead of I know lots of people like to journal to get it out um, but just taking that and putting it onto putting it into a bottle and onto a label that is very cathartic Mm. and has kind of been a little bit of my therapy Um, is it fully is it really healthy to have all of that intertwined into one maybe not but I think uh, I think it, it doesn't really make any sense for me to do it any other way. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, there's this. Um, I, I can't remember which culture does this, but there's this beautiful practice of uh, you make a a hollow clay sculpture, and then you leave a little hole at the bottom, and you sort of whisper something into it, something that's you know, either traumatic to you or, or maybe even like a hope or a dream or something like that, but like something that you can't have inside you anymore. And so you, you sort of take it out of your body, you whisper it into this thing and then, then you plug it up and you fire it and it becomes a solid object and living inside that object is that like that feeling. Uh, I feel like this is almost a similar situation happening with wine where you're, where you sort of take these ideas and uh, you impose them onto, onto this wine and you're like, Hey, this like idea now kind of lives in this wine. Um, and it, it may be, uh, sometimes maybe the wines line up specifically with those Mm -hmm. feelings and other times it's like, 
no, this is just sort of like part of the process is like, you know, it just has to be released this way. Um, yeah, no, that's actually completely true. Um, I, you know, I, in my daily life, I tend to, um, instead of, instead of um, dissecting and working through my problems, I tend to uh, distract myself, as I'm sure a lot of others do as well. But when I do, like you said, put all of that into a bottle and I sit and I write the prose and I write out the labels and I, and I um, put together the context of, of the wine, it, it, it truly is um, a, a form of therapy because I'm actually now forcing myself to actually sit with it, mm-hmm. dissect it, pick it apart, realize, okay, this is why that happened and this is how it needs to change and this is how it needs to evolve. And um, I find uh, just because our lives are, are so busy, I take those opportunities when I am releasing a new wine to regurgitate it all into the bottle just so, um, and, and just so I can objectively look at it, look at this issue and uh, pick it apart and dissect it and be able to come to peace with it and be able to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so then when finally the, uh, the wine hits the market, I've already gone through the process. I've thought about it. I've picked it apart. I've hopefully learned something <laughs> going forward yeah. from it. That's, that's, I mean, that's the goal. Um, and uh, I do feel truly a lot lighter. Um, in my mind after you know once that wine is is has left the building it's 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 on the market it's in people's mm-hmm. glasses um i feel like i i get a chance to move on from that um um from that issue yeah. or whatever that has been that's been weighing down in my mind for however long mm-hmm. i really like the um I'm not going to quote it accurately, but uh, but Bukowski essentially having this idea. He's like, oh, no, I, I don't write because I want to. I write because I have to. Yes, he's like, imagine yes. if all these things just continued to live in my brain. That would be horrible. Uh, and 100%. so, yeah, everybody needs their, their own outlet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that uh, the labels of wine bottles and uh, and connecting to the thing inside those wine bottles that, you know, like the, the production of that wine, you know, you're, you're talking about even if you go to the, the end of the previous harvest and the things that need to happen after the end of the previous harvest, all the way up into the time that the wine is finished, like you're often talking like an 18 month period. And so that 18 month period, any 18 month period in anybody's life is going to contain things that like need to to be out there mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that need to be worked through in some sort of way. So it's so cool that uh, that you've decided to sort of fuse these two parts of your life. Um, yeah, no, I really admire it. I think it's super rad. I think that vulnerability is very inspiring, and it makes me want to do a better job of it as well, too. So and and honestly, it's um, I've had so many people reach out and say that they've. Um, connected emotionally in one way or another to either the wine or the context. And, um, you know, that's just one of those things that I didn't really uh, plan on doing or expecting. And uh, the fact that people are connecting in that way has been insane to hear. It's, uh, it's, um, yeah, it's hard to put into words. It's um, when somebody, you know, uh, lets you know that they had this emotional reaction um, and connection to what you put out there, it's uh, it's 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 pretty special. Yeah, <laughs> that's, absolutely. That's the only word I can think of right now. It's, it's yeah, <laughs> it's special. <laughs> cool. Well, we've been chatting for just over an hour now, so I feel like uh, we'll kind of bring it to an end. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with everybody? Uh, any shoutouts you want to make? Any uh, additional information that uh, people might need? Um. Honestly, I uh, now that uh, our our little trip to to Calgary is uh, slowly coming to a close, I, I do want to say thank you to uh, you and Mark for for really um, doing justice to to our little project in in your guys's territory. Um, 
the way that you guys have uh, presented it and handled it and uh, and uh, learned the context of everything has been um, has been amazing and it, it truly means a lot so I want to say thank you to you guys yeah thank you hey I, I appreciate that we uh, our, our thought is always that um, the winemakers and farmers are, are not here to tell their stories and so we feel a huge sense of duty um, to accurately explain, uh, I don't know, the, in- the intensity that they put into their projects, mm-hmm. uh, the, the amount of heart and soul. And so for me, uh, if I can translate that accurately, like that's me doing my job more so than any other part of my job. So that, that's, I really appreciate that. So. And we appreciate it as well. Uh, sweet well if anybody has any additional questions uh, you can reach me via email at eric uh, e-r-i-k at juiceimports.com we'll also include both of our uh, instagrams on here Um, but yeah definitely follow along uh, see all the uh, ursa major content also sign up for their newsletter Uh, they release certain things on uh, via the newsletter that you cannot get any other way Uh, So if you want certain limited releases, definitely do that. Um, Otherwise, if you're looking to buy the wines in Alberta um, or Saskatchewan or the Yukon, uh, hit us up and we'll do our best to make sure that you're getting access to those wines. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. We're going to go for brunch now.